Hello and welcome to episode 117 of Decentralized Revolution. I'm Aaron Harris. Uh, I have hosted a lot of these episodes um, since uh, way back when it was just me. Uh, we've had our guest tonight on a couple times before. We're going to introduce him in a second. But I uh, really enjoyed uh, lately having uh, Michael Heiss and Brady Bishop in. First, Brady, how are you doing today? I'm good. You doing good? Okay, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I always envy your setup. You, you, it looks so much nicer than everybody else's. But uh, <laughs> Mike, setup. yeah, Mike, how are you today? I'm doing good, man. Loving life. Baby is holding his head up. Uh, the he's one month old, wearing clothes for three months old. Okay. Um, and with this new job, you know, I, I work for a Bitcoin ATM company, so I fight the Fed for work at work, and then I come home and get to talk about all this stuff. So yeah, good stuff. Yeah. Um, so speaking of fighting. Uh, the feds and uh, even uh, more uh, nefarious, their their masters, the globalists, uh, Dr. Michael Rechtenwald. You've written so many great books uh, over just the last four or five years. And uh, I think the last time we talked, uh, your current book was about to come out or had like just literally come out. So uh, probably a lot of people who are tuned in uh, know about it, but uh, uh, tell us what it is, where you got the idea, how it's going, what kind of response you're getting. Yeah, well, the last book is called The Great Reset and the Struggle for Liberty, Unraveling the Global Agenda. And uh, it, is a, it is about uh, the Great Reset, of course. And uh, I go into, uh, in that book, I talk about, uh, first of all, the, you know, the economics of, of this Great Reset, what the, what the economic order is they're trying to establish uh, and the means by which they're attempting to establish it. Uh, and then it goes into a great deal of depth about uh, these globalist organizations that have contributed to the Great Reset. Uh, first of all, the World Economic Forum, but others that have been part of uh, this globalist push for decades, uh, if not 100 years, actually, by now. And then I treat uh, the population ethics, as they would call it, of the Great Reset, uh, the Malthusian and Neo-Malthusian uh, prongs of it. Uh, and uh, then I treat the, uh, the climate change catastrophism that's pre the pre main pretext for uh, undertaking it. And then uh, I treat the uh, Fourth Industrial Revolution, which is the technologies they're using uh, or hoping to use in many cases to uh, once the system is established to uh, to keep it in place through surveillance technologies. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I address the question of conspiracy theory because it always comes up in this context. Uh, so I have a whole chapter on what about conspiracy theory? And so, so what if it's a conspiracy theory? Does that mean it's wrong? And uh, yeah, that's it. And I have a nine point plan for resisting uh, stopping this project as well. Yeah, I think that we uh, had talked about that the last time, and I think you were just kind of working on that or were just about to release uh, that part of it. And I've always been uh, intrigued about that, especially, you know, since the whole COVID thing. I think a lot of sort of conservatives and normies are kind of, you know, you hear them uh, talk about, you know, Klaus Schwab and uh, all this, and they kind of are starting to get it. And, yeah, they, they, but they don't really have. That's what my big uh, 
gripe against conservatives as a former conservative, as a Reagan kid back in the 80s who was, you know, very politically aware at age 10. And I was a conservative until I read Rothbard at around 17 or 18 is that conservatives, you know, it's embedded right in the word there. They're just, they're on their back foot all the time. Mm-hmm. They, always, they always want to go back 20 years. They don't really have a strategy to, to fight the state. It's Michael Malice's. They're just driving the speed limit. Hey, let's not go too far too quick. So that's why as a libertarian, I see that we have some, well, first of all, we really understand the economics. We understand well why Malthusianism is wrong economically, as well as, you know, the moral implications they draw from it. Mm-hmm. But I think that the whole decentralization thing, which is what we've been working on here uh, with the Mises caucus is to me, it's the only sort of fighting chance that we have um, because it doesn't go through conservatism, Inc. And it sort of, uh, you know, embraces the asymmetrical warfare resistance type stuff. So uh, before I get uh, your take on it, Michael, um, I want to ask Michael Heiss, like, because we were just talking about that the other day about how what we're doing with Project Decentralized Revolution, which, you know, we're with the elections kind of in between elections, our focus on candidates, it's not quite as top of mind as it has been. But, you know, why we're still doing that, why, you know, what about that is is the long term vision and not just, you know, here the next couple of years with the LP, but it's 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 really looking into the future to fight exactly what Mike Rechtewald has been writing about. Yeah, as I'm sure we'll get into in depth, um, you know, wokeness and, and the march of wokeness through the institutions is really just an attempt to kind of uh, astroturf culture in a way to shape policy in a way that the globalists want uh, and, and the big state people want. And uh, so we have to kind of understand that and, and fight back against that. I would say at the local level, because while, yes, they have taken control of the institutions, they're trying to, you know, use those institutions, use pop culture, use uh, Hollywood and all of these different uh, uh, culture centers to impose a culture of wokeness down so that the, the, the legislation comes back up. Well, I would argue that that culture in any real and organic sense comes up through the family, through the community and then, you know, broadens out into the macro. Uh, and that's why there's an attack on the family, because it's 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 a strong incubator of culture and of, uh, you know, strength, essentially. So we have to have a, a political strategy that that kind of embraces that and, and fights back against that, which is why years like this, 2023, on the surface, it might seem boring. It's the year after the midterms, the year before the presidential election. But we do have a lot of town council races, city council races. Uh, school board races, mayor races, all of that kind of stuff where the politics is a lot more aligned with the culture, you know, or at least as much as you're going to get in this current political environment. So that gives us an opportunity to shape the narrative from that local level and become leaders at the local level and start to uh, get into office where it's most likely for us as libertarians, start to earn the trust of the community, and then we can use that to nullify. Um, and, and, you know, the sky's the limit on what can be nullified uh, once you get into those positions, it's really anything that's not in Article One, Section Eight of the Constitution could be nullified, including all of the woke agenda, all of the globalist agenda, all of that can be nullified right from your town. And, and we can build these enclaves and start to connect them over time as they are trying to impose it. So that's that's kind of the rat race that we're in. And that is the vision of Project Decentralized Revolution. 
Yeah, and for people, if you haven't read that yet and you want to get to it at some point, go to projectdecentralizedrevolution.com and there's a, like a little pop-up that comes up at the beginning that has a link to the article. And then uh, Mike also kind of, uh, it's a YouTube video of, of Mike uh, reading it out. Um, so I don't know why you would want to, you know, it's a, it's a, comp- <laughs> yeah, it's, well, it's a comprehensive <laughs> year kidding. over year strategy, you know, yeah. like long story short, if we target races, like we can get the data to find what of these city council races could be winnable within, like in my state of Pennsylvania, there's over 50 city council races that could be won with 50 or less votes. So that constitutes the bottom floor. And, and if you go after that year one and let's say you get, I don't know, 25 of them, first of all or 20 of them. First of all, that's more political power than the Libertarian Party has had ever, having 25 city councils in one state by itself. Yeah. Um, then you start to work on a program of arming them with nullification to do this, but then you come back the next year, okay, 50, you know, the ground floor is out. Why don't we expand now to 100? You know, and hopefully in the time between, you have done some nullification, you have created some stories, you have generated some trust, and you come back all right, what are the seats that could be attainable at 100 votes or less? And you just it starts to build on the, on itself over time um, from again, from the bottom up through the culture, through the localities where we really have the best shot. So all of that is available in the white paper at Project Decentralized Revolution Go there, hit the donate button, help us do this work in what is otherwise the boring time. But this is the this is the real time, if you ask me. Yeah. And one more quick uh, sort of plug. Run as libertarian. Is that still up? If somebody wants to be a campaign manager, or a, yep, or absolutely. Candidate? And and we we have our own funnels to recruit people. We're doing two trainings a month uh, with uh, Amy Lapore. She is our candidate support uh, liaison. She's been doing a great job. We've recruited over three hundred people to run locally, either this year or next year, for these types of races. Uh, and we're you know I'm hearing word that you might start to see some tools to support candidates from uh, the the national party come down that we can use to embolden this strategy, you know, and that's, that's what it's all about. So run is libertarian.com. If you want to run for city council and get support from us, or uh, if you want to be a campaign manager for somebody else who would want to run, because that's just as important as well. Yeah. So Dr. Rechtewald, so what in general, I, I've looked at your, you know, the grand refusal stuff, but talk about the, um, the part that, you know, the decentralized approach fits mm-hmm. into that. Well, it fits in perfectly. I mean, everything about globalism is just, it's the exact inverse of decentralization. So resisting globalism is, is, a, is a prerequisite, I would say, to resisting uh, global, globalism. Uh, so the grand refusal's premise, the main premise is that uh, uh, we can't control what these globalists attempt to do, what they attempt to do. Now, we can probably foil their plans and hopefully they will relent, which is not to be expected or uh, to be uh, anticipated. I would think they're not, they'll double down. But the main premise is that we cut the puppet strings from ourselves and our communities. So that means uh, the nine points consist of a kind of uh, grand refusal, but there are specifics that you can undertake and one of them is the is the primary thing I think number one on the list is refusing the central bank digital currency when it's instituted, uh, and that's going to be necessary in order to, uh, of course, if you know anything about the central bank digital currency CBDC, what it means is total surveillance over spending, savings, and debt uh, by the Fed. 
uh, and the Fed is a private bank, but they're also a federal agency. Likewise, it's it's centralized surveillance over spending uh, monitored by the state itself. So in order to do that, in order to refuse the CBDC, we must have alternate currency in place. Uh, and that means in uh, a network that will accept that currency. So that's all part of decentralization, I think local communities can create uh, a currency of choice or use a currency of choice to make sure they are able to opt out of the CBDC because the CBDC is closing the totalitarian circle. It is the end of liberty as far as uh, the economic sphere is concerned altogether. Yeah. Mike, we were, we were also just talking the other day about uh, how 10th Amendment Center, I think, has had like some of the legal tender laws and stuff like that, the legislation to reform that at the local level. And, uh, and, and then also you, uh, the, the, the BRICS countries talking about a gold backed currency, like to me, like the sort of globalist agenda, I think does sort of hinge on, you know, the federal reserve kind of being the, you know, the, the ringmaster with the, all the other central banks mm -hmm. in a fiat currency that they could then port over to digital. Cause of course you, a fiat currency would never be created out of thin air, mm -hmm. except I, I, I don't think it could ever really practically be done. How it was done in this country is we had a hundred plus years of the dollar, which was either actual gold or then backed by gold for a long time. And then they would just like, Oh, gold's illegal. Now we're going to do this, you know, within the span of, you know, Woodrow Wilson and Roosevelt, they mm -hmm. weaned us off of that. But like, um, is like the you know localities making other things you know so able to do contracts and things other than u.s dollars and then plus uh if the um if a block of countries that doesn't want to be part of the u.s led you know cartel like mm -hmm. to me that's maybe attacking it from both ways mm -hmm. uh is that to mike or me yeah, yeah. well uh, Mike, because you, you were talking about the, the yeah. BRICS stuff earlier today. Yeah. Well, I I mean, I, I think it's got to. I mean, the, the thing that I the number one thing that I see and I actually want to ask uh, Rectenwald his thoughts about this is like uh, Ron DeSantis had um, like took some kind of executive action or something like that to ban uh, a central bank digital currency within Florida. Now, my understanding <laughs> is that that's through the Uniform Commercial Code. Uh, I don't know that that would necessarily ban it from being quote unquote legal tender and therefore, uh, you know, taxes being able to be paid for it. Um, but like, that's, that's one thing that could be done. But my personal opinion is that it wouldn't be enough. It would have to be, uh, followed up with these other pieces of legislation, like a bank repository or actually legalizing gold or silver or even Bitcoin mm -hmm. as legal le tender at the state law. So then people are at the state level. I mean, so then people have that choice. Um, yeah, yeah. so. So, Rector, what what are your thoughts on that? And like, do you think this thing in Florida is legit? Is that like, is that like a real power move that DeSantis did, or is that like a model that we could follow? What are what are your thoughts I mean, on that? I think it's 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 a good start. It's not sufficient. It's necessary, but not sufficient. Uh, that that so that you're right. There has to be uh, another currency or currencies in play that are accepted and legal. Uh, and so there's more to be done than just rejecting the CBDC and ruling it out 
And but it's a good start, and uh, hopefully this kind of trend would roll across various states, and others will take note and uh, exact the same measures. And then, of course, it should you know go from the state to the local level. Uh, but it's a good start. I don't think it's the it's the whole answer. Uh, I don't know if in in the case of DeSantis, it's mere showmanship, or whether it how this will play out in the uh, actual economy. We'll see. Yeah, um, I feel like the CBDC isn't. Oh, sorry. I no, feel like Brady. CBDC isn't a very popular concept, even in regards to like leftists and stuff. Like, I feel like there's not that many people that I like, other than people that are obviously like politicians. I'm talking about like normal people. It doesn't mm -hmm. seem like a very popular concept. Like, not I mean, many people are like, "Yay!" I mean, the Fed. <laughs> the Fed did a uh, study. Uh, a preliminary study on on the question and they opened it up to uh comments and uh the comments were great i mean if if there are any indication of where where people stand it was there wasn't a single backer and there were thousands of negative negative comments and everybody gets the point why the cbdc is so pernicious so yeah, I think it it doesn't have popular support, but that's never been uh, necessary for some of the measures that have been exacted and enacted on us. Uh, I don't I don't think the uh, COVID lockdowns were very popular. Well, except well, for they convinced people that it was a good idea. People. They scared so, a lot of yeah, is what so they did. Yeah, so it's like how yeah. are they going to convince people into thinking like they're going to have to in order to implement this? They yeah. can't just implement it if it's such an unpopular idea. They're going to have to convince people that this is what they need to do. And how are they going to? Do yeah, that? they're using they'll use the idea of convenience uh, and uh, interoperability, and also uh, inclusion is the big watchword here. Uh, because they're suggesting that, you know, there's X amount of millions of people in the country that don't have bank accounts. So the CBDC is inclusive. Anytime but, you hear that word inclusion, run for the hills. But if they don't have a bank account, how are they going to have a digital currency? They'll be, be the same way they got checks from from the, the state for uh, COVID relief. It would just yeah. be granted by the state. It'll, It'll be, be linked to your social, through your social security. Number. Yeah. Linked to social security, maybe... Uh, through uh, UBI, Universal Basic Income, something like that, in order to give everybody an account, they'll open up some, uh, they'll probably give away some amount of digital currency to everybody to opt in. Yeah. Oh, it will bribe them probably. partly. Yeah, yeah. That, that would probably work, a bribe. <laughs> and and your your question, Brandy, actually brings me in my next question of the the intellectual centers that are propagating all of this stuff. I assume they're fans of the whole problem, reaction, solution thing. My theory has always been that this is going to come on the heels of the of the engineered calamity. You know, mm -hmm. these people know what they're doing by putting us thirty two trillion dollars in debt. They know, right. you know, they know that as the interest rate goes up, that the the uh, the cost of servicing the debt goes up. We're at the point soon. The interest payments on the debt are going to be the biggest line item in the entire government budget. You know what? What happened? They are open. Like the state is openly saying that social security is going to be bankrupt, I think like 2028 20, or something like that, which means two years from now, probably, <laughs> um, you know, is, so is, is that part of it? Like just the same way that they, they use the fear of COVID to get people to accept lockdowns for their own good, where maybe they wouldn't have, if they were in more of a reasonable mindset to kind of use the chaos of, of a financial collapse to, to pose as the savior through the new system. 
that's what I think they're going to do. Uh, using bank collapses and uh, uh, other measures, uh, other crises, you know, the banks, uh, I thought that it might have happened earlier when we started seeing some of these bank failures uh, earlier in the spring or late spring. Uh, I thought we might see more bank uh, failures and then uh, the solution will come along, of course, be proposed as as the solution, which would be, you know, central banking. And uh, also, what do you well, go ahead, sorry. I, I, I was going to say, if they if the if the inflation thing ever gets a little too far out of their control than how they, you know, they've been able to kind of keep it from getting too crazy. Um, but if that ever gets too bad, I think that would also be another crisis that it, it won't have to make economic sense, right? Like mm-hmm. we libertarians would be like, oh, so you're going from one fiat to just a, a digitized fiat. And how is that going to like, that's yeah. actually a, a move in the wrong direction, but they'll, they will be able to sell it mm-hmm. to to the masses who don't understand what money is to begin with. So, mm-hmm. um, so I think that, uh, one I'm of not those so things, convinced. Well, I think, I, I think I, I, my opinion is I, I, I think they'll be able to do it to half of society, the boomer half, um, the, the one who has historically through like more of a percentage of their lives had higher trust in the institutions, yeah. but the younger ones, yeah. I don't know about that. Like you're, you're like, for example, you're seeing a revolt in the current crop of like 18 year olds to mm-hmm. go back to the trades and they, mm-hmm. they know they're being sold a bill of goods to some extent with, with uh, college yeah. and stuff like that. Well, I, 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 that's a good point because I, but I, I do think there are a lot of people who won't like it, but they don't have the knowledge or the wherewithal or the courage and not, I'm not like calling them cowards, but like if your job is like, Oh, we're only going to pay, you know, they say, Oh, anybody who's got more than a hundred employees, you have to pay your, people in this digital currency, like is somebody with the, uh, with a mortgage and three kids uh, and, you know, a sick mom gonna like buck that. I mean, I, I think that we saw that with the, with the jab. I know a lot of people who knew, you know, who were kind of, I don't think they knew how bad it was going to be, what a health risk it was going to be, but they were suspicious. They didn't think they need it, needed it, but they did it anyway. So I think that's the thing is, they may not have under threat of their jobs. Yeah, they yeah. may not have everybody fully bought into it, but especially the fact that what should be the um, opposition to this, if we did have a, a true two-party system, and we did have uh, a Republican Party that stood for what they kind of used to say they stood for, like federalism mm-hmm. and stuff like that, they would be they would have a coherent way to uh, to fight back against this. So a lot of those people would have some leadership and they would then feel comfortable and maybe, okay, the Republican party has me covered. So I, I'm going to hold out and wait, but they don't have that. They have every one of those and Trump, we're not even talking about Trump, but uh, cause he's, it's another topic, but like every other single Republican uh, DeSantis included, I think they will would and will fall right in line with this. And so what would, should be a beachhead against that. It's just going to be like a slowly, slightly more slowly adopting version of it is my fear. Um, Someone in the chat think, said Randy? boomers are the largest demographic, and that's not true anymore. Millennials are now because we were the second largest, but now millennials have surpa- surpassed the boomers. Really, I think like you have to get the millennials and Gen X 
and alpha i think that's what they are called right engaged and like talking about these things and educated on these things like i think that's going to be our saving grace right now like yeah. unfortunately the boomers are lost cause <laughs> yeah sorry sorry to aaron and your your gen <laughs> x generation you're the lost generation they've <laughs> already <laughs> been like they've already been you know they uh, most people at that particular level uh, like boomers and Gen X, they've already solidified their opinions. I think it's way easier to change the minds of younger people because they're hmm. still figuring things out. Well, on, on the other hand, the younger people have been re more recently subjected to propaganda and ideological indoctrination in public schools and the universities. So, but the kids are rebelling in Massachusetts. Did you hmm. see like there are kids that are just rebelling, like kids that said like USA is my pronouns and were chanting it because they tried to make them. Uh, Yes. force them to do like, some pride stuff like kids i think that gen alpha is gonna rebel like for better or worse like it could go they could pendulum swing all the way into like off right who knows but like i think that the kids are rebelling i think even i think even covid woke a lot of people a lot of millennials and gen z up obviously not everyone but mm -hmm. i think that it's happening and i think it's mm -hmm. like a trickle and i definitely i'm optimistic personally well, we can only do what we can do, which is to continue to uh, propagate, uh, you know, knowledge about this, what this is and what it signifies and uh, and uh, and spread the word. And hopefully, yeah, I think appeal to uh, that gener those those younger uh, generations, because uh, they they are more capable and flexible, mm -hmm. I think, because of their uh, because you said, as you said, they don't have these patterns of thought laid down so, so, you know, so um, solidly at this juncture. I wanted to ask Dr. Rechtenwald something. Um, uh, I've mentioned a couple of times uh, saying that I don't think the conservatives have a coherent sort of way to look at this. That's my gut. But like, ha have you with this book and with with your last uh, few books? I think you have gotten to speak in front of some conservative audiences mm -hmm. and podcasts and stuff. Yeah. What What is your sense of like the, you know, is, is the conservative movement even a thing now? Like, wh like what are you seeing? Are some of them getting it or mm -hmm. like yeah. what kind of response has this, you know, libertarian anti-statist slash anti-globalist thing? How are they looking at what you're saying? Well, wow, that's a great question. Um, so I want to say, first of all, that the book is premised on, on libertarian principles. Uh, I say that straight up in the introduction. Uh, so I have been pleasantly surprised by uh, by conservatives. And this is not conservative, Inc., not the people that are bamboozling them or trying to bamboozle them with just another form of statism, but rather... Uh, this is on the ground conservatives who have become and tucker carlson we we talked about him before the show started actually has been somewhat of a catalyst in this regard uh to uh, there has been a greater defection of conservatives from uh the neocon agenda and from you know they're starting to see that statism is is not the answer at all and that uh, they you know uh, they are coming re rejecting a lot of uh, uh the status measures that come from the right 
So I've been very pleasantly surprised by the reception I've gotten and and the questions I've fielded uh, from standard or you know conservative audiences who are very much leaning in our direction, very much. What are what are some of those questions that you're hearing that you would maybe not hear uh, at one of the Mises Caucus events you've spoken at or Mises Institute or a libertarian audience? Uh, okay. Um, I would think, uh, people have asked me things like, uh, uh, well, they want to know how to resist this. Uh, this is the biggest question. I'm always having to be Mr. Answer man after I give a talk. And that's a real problem because it's difficult to answer all the questions. They want to know how to resist it. And I tell them and they want to know, and they're losing faith in the idea of central government doing anything for them at all. Mm -hmm. So they want to know what do we do other than that? And I tell them, you know, we need to model ourselves after like the Amish, not, not necessarily becoming neo-Luddites, but in terms of how they organize themselves without, without the state interfering in their behavior. Uh, and uh, that, and they, they actually are very receptive to the idea of uh, decentralization. Because I, I speak about it all the time in, in these uh, talks that the only answer is is not to fight the central government with more central power but to actually pull out of it and re, and, and and to attempt to create autonomous or semi-autonomous communities that are disjunct from uh and and that are uh independent of to the to the extent possible federal uh state power and that this is this this very much it resonates with these people now. One thing yeah. I wanted to I wanted to ask a question, uh, and I'll shut up for a little while. I know I always talk too much. I know it. I know it. Yeah, let's hear more from Brandy. I want to hear. <laughs> well, her, you hear her thoughts. Well, this question actually loops in Brandy. So, like, I know she's much more active on Twitter than I am because I hate Twitter, um, both before and after Elon. But uh, as someone who has written a lot about big tech, um, yeah. Uh, I'm going to have Brandy respond first and then uh, uh, get your take on uh, are things changing in regard to big tech? Are they being more uh, is free speech a little better off now um, in this fight against globalism and against the state? Where uh, where do you guys and again, Brandy first, like is are things better now than they were two years ago? And uh, where do you see things going? I want you both to to chime in on that uh i mean a little bit but i still don't think that elon is some like champion for free speech i think that's kind of just the pitch to be completely honest i don't think that twitter is like that they're still banning people and it's still people that with ideas that they don't like and i think that elon kind of it's i'm not i don't know how you feel about this michael but like i think that Elon is not against the global agenda, even though he kind of paints himself to be. Mm -hmm. um, I kind of see him as someone that is is still doing their bidding. Just he's trying to be paint. He's trying to paint himself as someone that is like fighting, fighting for the good guys, you know. But I mm -hmm. don't really see it that way. Especially, I mean, didn't he just hire the CEO that is uh, the WEF lady? Yeah, Linda Yaccarino. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, so that's my opinion. I still don't think that Twitter is it's maybe it's better for people that are more right leaning. Can I, I think, let me give yeah. one pushback to that. 
Okay. Um, and, and I'm not even pushing back that he's that he's not a, a globalist or anything like that. I'm not I'm not equipped to speak on that. What I will say, though, is that he is enabling mass conversations that just otherwise wouldn't exist. I would kill for like so like when you when you see Elon having town halls with RFK or having ta- town halls with DeSantis or something like that, you know, say what you want about DeSantis. I would have killed for Ron Paul to have that opportunity in 2012. Yeah, it just mm-hmm. simply did not exist. And I don't and I don't know that we we realize how big of a shift it is for for him to kind of have that like that alternate um, way of, of kind of like learning about our candidates or even just with whatever the, the nature of the conversation itself and the framing of it and what that says about the reality of politics today. You know, so like when you take Elon doing that over here and then you take the Tucker Carlson, um, uh, you know, presidential forum that he did the other day hosted by Blaze, who we have friends in Blaze as libertarians, um, you know, and and the kind of questions I mean that he was asking Nikki Haley and 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 all of them, you know, asking, well, who, whose cocaine was that? Like challenging them to just be real a little bit, you know what I mean? Like, and 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 th- this stuff just didn't exist, and it's going to take time for it to proliferate. But I think, I mean, look at what has happened to Tucker ever since he like they they got rid of him at Fox. I predicted on on Tim Pool that he was he hasn't even involved into his ultimate form yet, and now boom, millions and millions and millions of people watching that town hall. I just think that regardless of uh, Musk's shortcomings, that he is facilitating a way like a whole totally alternative conversation that didn't exist before. I I mean, so I agree with that, but uh, I will also say he knows his demographic and he cares about the bottom line and there's incentive. So Twitter's mostly I think like more people that are like right leaning are on Twitter and also more men than women. So like he understands his demographic, like having Tucker talking to Andrew Tate also makes sense. I think Twitter is 75% male. Like, I I think it's like he gets the demographic and he's going to market towards what demographics already there, in my opinion. Well, yeah, I mean, I I agree with both of you in in a way. Uh, I I would say that uh, I, I think that Musk and, you know, this is another issue really is a very ambiguous figure. Uh, and, uh, but the more importantly, and then I also agree with you, Brandy, that his appointment of Linda Yaccarino, who, who is, was not, is not the, uh, chairman and founder and chair of the world economic forum. She, she, she merely, um, and you didn't say this, but people on Twitter did, they said, uh, that she was the uh, founder in Earth. She was the chairman of the World Economic Forum. She's she's the chair of a particular, uh, a particular like uh, forum on the forum in that forum, uh, a particular uh, colloquium, I guess, of uh, of the forum. So, but there's things that unfortunately that Musk will not be able to do, and and this is not necessarily his fault. But the EU is going to attempt to pass and impose laws on uh, their users, no matter what forums they're on. And uh, they are using uh, the Digital Services Act, I think it's called, to attempt to do this so that Musk might have to abide by these globalist uh, criteria and, uh, you know, uh, effectively edicts that are coming down from from the eu and uh 
and from these globalist organizations like the WEF, um, who has been very, very powerful and uh, in in imposing censorship, especially on the COVID narrative. So there are some things that he cannot do, but I agree with Mike too, that he has uh, opened up the possibility for some conversation. So while Musk is not a hero, and I've written about this, we need to exploit whatever we can, whatever niches open up, and there is the potential niche there that can be exploited while it while it lasts. And yeah. so I think we should do that. But I agree with Brandy that Musk is no, I mean, you know, he's no free market libertarian. Uh, he's come out against the ESG, but only because Tesla was thrown off the uh, S&P 500's ESG top 10 or altogether from their ESG index. He was about it before. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he didn't have a problem with it before. In fact, he was benefiting from it. Tesla has yeah. been benefiting from that. Uh, and so, you know, that being said, I think it's just, it's just, he's not a hero to put our, uh, to put our hope in, but he, he is opening up opportunities that we should exploit. I have a question. I want to jump back a little bit and then kind of have a like almost like a back to basics conversation on the WEF and stuff like that. But you had said earlier that um, you thought the I think you said earlier that the, you thought the collapse would have happened by now, that like that it's it's not as I thought they were going to accelerate it with the bank failures. Yeah. What do you think that is? Because I, I have a theory, but I'm, like, what do you think that is? How do you think it's buoying this way and limping along as long as it is? Um, I think it's just an incrementalism. Uh there's a kind of incrementalism, you know, and a kind of two-step, three-step dance, two steps forward, one step back in order to habituate people to the prospects, you know, so that you don't want to put the frog in boiling water right away. You want to boil it one, you know, turn it up one degree at a time so that it doesn't jump out of the pot. Uh, effectively, I think that's what's going on. Are, are you familiar with the, the milkshake theory? No, I'm not. Yeah, I, I like the burning of the the frog boiling metaphor. But if you have a better one, go for oh, it. Oh no, no, that that's a perfect metaphor, and it's not at odds with this. And and I've known about this for a while. I've heard uh, Jeff Dice start to talk about this. I want to say in the past year or so. Um, but it was it was a theory put forward by a financial analyst named Brent Johnson, and he actually had a debate with Peter Schiff about this. And I, I think he's being proven right. The idea I don't. It's a stupid name in my opinion, but with the idea of the the milkshake theory is um, essentially that regardless of what we do to abuse the dollar here at home, regardless of how much we print uh, and all of that, that because we are the reserve currency of the world, that gives us relative strength against all of the other currencies who themselves are, uh, you know, abusing and printing their currencies. Mm -hmm. So that as, as you start to see, um, you know, that the nature of central banking come home to roost around the country, that um, is as much as we see, uh, price inflation here at home, you see a, a, an actual strengthening of the dollar in global markets as other currencies fall faster yeah, than I have us. Read this. I didn't remember it was the milkshake theory, but yeah, I've read I've read this theory. Yeah, and I think that's it. And I think I, I I think we haven't really thought about that, which means that we might have a long way to go, and a, and uh, domestic prices a lot higher to go uh, and, until that all comes to pass, because that would mean that you need to see the falling of other currencies first, you know, mm -hmm. and yeah. the idea with uh, the dollar being the, uh, the reserve currency, it's like Highlander. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like we would mm -hmm. be the, the last fiat standing in a rat race to the bottom. Yeah, that's about right. 
I think that's probably right. Uh, it's it's got we've got all these other currencies that have to come down first, uh, and and that would even strengthen the dollar as it does, as the rest of the currencies fall. Uh, I think that's the basic idea, right? Uh, even though we're headed downhill, it'll look like we're we're actually uh, uh, in global markets at least. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it'll look to us as if you know the dollar is gaining strength. But it'll only be relative to the other currencies. Yeah. But then it would be stronger, you know, absolutely, at least in the short term. Yeah. So unless you guys had any other questions, I, I had like a, I wanted to almost like go back to basics on the WEF and kind of continue the, uh, we went off on like a bunch of tangents. Um, oh, that's what we're here for, right? I mean, <laughs> we need to, uh let these things go flow because this kind of things that come up into people's minds. Absolutely. Um, so what, for somebody who doesn't know, what exactly is the WEF mm -hmm. and, um, and how does this organization have the ability to, um, enact its agenda? You know what I mean? Because yeah. right. this is an area where I think libertarians have really struggled in the past, mm -hmm. you know, three, four, five years, the whole, it's a private company, man. And like coming to terms with the reality of corporatism. Yeah, this is this is a big point, and I've been trying to get this across in libertarian circles for years now, uh, and with my idea of the governmentalities and and all that. But the WEF is an international NGO, uh, and they see their role as uh, as uh, as establishing global governance. Uh, that's what they're attempting to bring about. And how they're doing it is not directly through the state. This is why it's very, I think it's eluding a lot of libertarians. And even I even talked with uh, Walter Block about this on my own podcast, Rekt, uh, R-E-K-T, by the way, a little plug Subscribe. There. Yeah. <laughs> you won't find it because I'm so shadow banned everywhere on Twitter and Facebook and especially YouTube and uh, Google. But anyway, uh, they're doing it through corporations, actually. The, the WEF uh, is an international NGO whose main object right now is to bring about uh, the meeting of the UN's uh, Agenda 2030 Sustainable Development Goals. And they may aim to do this by establishing what they call public-private partnerships. And that is partnerships between the state or states and corporations. And they are signing on these corporate partners. They have over a thousand major corporate partners from all over the world in all of the top, in all the industries and the top players in all of those industries. And they get them to sign on to this idea of stakeholder capitalism. Uh, which is the new economic order that the Great Reset attempts to establish. And the mechanism for the for this stakeholder capitalism is the uh, Environmental, Social, and Governance Index on the stock market and in banking and in insurance and so forth. So what they're doing is signing all these corporate partners on to roll out this stakeholder capitalism regime. And stakeholder capitalism is uh, what they claim it is. And what it is are two different things. It's a cartel scheme that is meant to, uh, first of all, control corporations from a central stand, from centralized governance, uh, from a uh, centralized global governance standpoint. 
forcing them to abide by the ESG index scores uh, and forcing them out of business if they don't abide uh, by virtue of depriving them of capital investments. Uh, Larry Fink is one of the is a board member of the C, of the World Economic Forum, uh, uh, the board of directors, and he is also the leading edge of the ESG uh, drive. Although he's now saying they're not going to use the word the, the phrase ESG anymore, um, but that doesn't mean anything. It's just going to be uh, a rose by another name. We'll smell the same, and they're signing all they're forcing these corporations into abiding by these uh, esg indexing and it is affecting the entire economy and uh there's been pushback but it's nothing compared to what this regime represents as it is so the world economic forum is the is the uh, center for pushing this uh stakeholder regime uh, and uh by stakeholder, what they mean is that everybody is a stakeholder in corporations. Uh, but really what it means is that there are only certain stakeholders in the economy, those that are approved by the ESG stakeholder regime and uh, barring those who are not approved. And uh, this is driving up prices. It'll drive up. Uh, it, it distorts the market. Uh, it also then is followed up by state regulations. So it's kind of like a pre or extra governmental system that then is followed up by regulations by the state. So these companies are being told that you need to get out ahead of these state. If this, if the regulators, if the state wasn't there to do the regulations, this would not be happening because there would be no threat. But they're telling these companies, if you don't get out ahead of this, you will be sanctioned by the state. Eventually, you'll. You'll, uh, you'll be uh, sanctioned because you won't meet the regulatory requirements to operate. So that's why, that's how they're doing this. So in theory, because it's being done through corporations, yeah, doesn't that mean theoretically that it, this could be combated in the marketplace through what you might call like conscious capitalism? I hate this because it kind of goes against the whole beauty of capitalism to me, but like, you know, one example- It should be would battled be by unconscious capitalism. Uh, and that is to say capitalism that doesn't have a that doesn't have an overriding interventionist uh, uh, operative uh, operating system, which is what this is. This is like a, uh, this centralized interventionism coming from extra governmental organs like the World <coughs> Economic Forum and the U.N. The U.N. is a big driver of this, too. They've gotten forty seven hundred asset managers, banks and investment firms to sign on to their principles of responsible investment, which say all six of them basically say, we will do ESG, we will do ESG. I mean, it's very outrageous. It's like, uh, so. Yeah. I, I, may, I may have misspoke. What I, what I meant was conscious consumerism. Right. So like, so one, yes. for example, for example, um, it would be a light version of this, but the, 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 the uh, Bud Light boycott. If yeah. that could perhaps be harnessed, that energy could, could perhaps be harnessed uh, in in other areas to, to identify the corporations uh, who are going along with this and then going okay. another way. Yes, but the, the problem is it's so many of them that you almost can't find any exceptions. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's because the ESG is so widely pervasive now. 
but there are exceptions and we can build on them. So I recommend, and it's part of my nine point plan, is to divest from ESG companies and to pull your money out of ESG dictatorial banks. And that's most of the majors because they're feeding this beast. Uh, they're uh, determining whether you're capital investment worthy on the basis of your ESG score. Uh, and they're determining, the banks are determining whether you're wor worthy of loans on the basis of your ESG score. So this has to be thought by consumers in uh, blocks, really, blocks of consumers who will then uh, divest and invest in non-ESG companies and banks and uh, get their money if you have assets, uh, if you have stocks, et cetera, out of ESG dictatorial uh, asset managers, uh, stock portfolios, uh, banks, et cetera. Do you, do you have another book lined up that you're going to write? Oh, that's Cause great. Because I, I have an well, idea. Who are you? Yeah. Who, look who you're asking. This is Michael Reckerwald. He, he writes a book every six months. So. <laughs> Go ahead. Not quite, but I did have five in the last five years. Yeah. Uh, well, this interesting. You do. What do you have in mind? This this sounds like somebody should write the book of how to live outside of ESG, mm -hmm. uh, and like the examples would be like like you said. All right, get out of the major banks. So that could be, you know, go to uh, you know, maybe go to a regional bank, go to a credit union, go to Bitcoin, go to infinite banking, you know, and like all of these different alternatives. And then yeah. it's like, okay, how do you escape the uh, medical industrial complex? And then you can talk about. Uh, uh, direct care providers and uh, mm -hmm. combined with health share plans to get around the insurance cartels and the, and the medical industrial complex. And, mm -hmm. you know, just kind of all of these, these holes in society to escape the matrix. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's, you, that's right. Yeah. That's, that's what the, the nine point plan is trying to exploit. It could be blown up into a treatise actually. You're right. And uh, I don't think I could do it myself alone. I would need, like a co-author for that because this i would need somebody probably three co-authors you know because i don't i can't possibly master all those fields you Let's, know uh, i'll maybe talk to you about this offline dr rechtenwald uh, yeah. because uh, i'm having some ideas running through my head and and we've been thinking about you know new things to do as far as content here at the mises caucus so maybe an anthology type stuff with you maybe you know, overseeing it or something like that. So let me, uh, I'll shoot you an email. We'll talk. Yeah. I'd be interested in that. I think that's a good, good idea. Uh, and I would love to edit. I'd love editing. I've edited, yeah. I've edited several volumes of books and uh, I love doing that. Yeah. Um, I have a question. Go, uh, So for, cause like ESG, when it comes to the WEF, like what do you think the goal is? Cause like I don't, is, is ESG isn't the goal. It's almost like the, precursor to get to the goal is the goal centralized a centralized one world government is it is it just one government is that the goal because if that's the goal then i don't think that like how you said like oh well now they're gonna they're gonna rebrand i think that the wef and esg like it's got bad branding like people yeah. don't like it anymore so they're gonna just figure out something else and the new gay order like yeah. figure just well no because that's the thing if that's not the goal though like the yeah. goal is one world government the tools that they're using to get there are just tools but they don't need to use those tools they can well change, yeah that's great they can, point. yeah they can change directions they could use other things as well you know like yeah except they do have like everybody else they have 
limited resources. We all face scarcity as the main premise of all of our economic our economic actions. Uh, so they've invested a great deal in this climate change, or I call it climate change catastrophism. Mm -hmm. This is a big, they've invested a great deal into this. What is the main goal of this? I think it is, first of all, the ESG is a monopoly scheme, it, or a, it's a shared cal, uh, monopoly scheme. Uh, it's a cartel scheme. Yep. It, it, it's a way to drive out competition and eliminate pl players from the market and to monopolize the marketplace. Uh, then, then it also is a global governance scheme because what they do is they posit this global crisis and then they say that the only solution to a global crisis is global governance. Um, so we need to have this overarching global governance to control. And I, I, I won't call it, I mean, one, it is world government, but they, they're basically using a network uh, model for this world government. Like, it's I, a I wanna, network. Yeah. I want to take a crack at that. So as, as libertarians being anti-statists, I know that I think we tend to talk about, uh, when we talk about uh, uh, public-private partnerships, I'm going to put this comment back up. I, I put it... Uh, um, yes, that's a right. A minute ago, and my thing is, I think as libertarians, we focus a lot on the the Klaus Schwabs, the Nancy Pelosi's, the uh, Joe Biden, you know, the state side of things. But like in fascism, it is a mm -hmm. it is a partnership between the corporate interests and the government, and I think mm -hmm. that those people have different goals. So like the yeah. you know the the guy in charge of BlackRock and Vanguard and General Motors and Apple, like those guys who are on those boards and the, they just want to make money. Mm -hmm. And so if they're at the top of the pile, Oh, there's this thing called the state that I can use influence lobby mm -hmm. to, to rewrite mm -hmm. the rules of the game mm -hmm. so I can boost my share price. Mm -hmm. So they're, they, most of those guys don't care about um, all the ESG stuff and the social engineering stuff. Some of them maybe, but like, it, it's just an easy just it's it's a way to do business. Yes, you don't think you don't you think there's the a will a will to power on the corporate end. Well, but their will to power is their bottom line. Yeah. Like I I don't think they re a lot of them really don't care. Like those type of guys, they don't have no interest in like writing bills to like whatever. They mm. just want to make sure their share price is up and they get their bonuses and yeah. all that. And yeah. so it's it's interesting. So like we think of. Um, you know, fascism is like the Nazis or whatever and having that racial element and yeah. people say, well, that's not what's going on here. But if you look at the what uh, the guys on the No Agenda podcast called the trans Maoism uh, stuff and the uh, CRT stuff and the uh, all the other stuff, mm -hmm. that's the racial identity element of modern day fascism mm -hmm. is the opposite, right? Yes, it's the opposite right. of what we think of. So yeah, that's right. a lot of the people who sign on for this, whether it's college professors, CEOs, Congress, uh, humans, whatever, they're in it for a different reason, mm -hmm. but they all think they are going to be driving it and going to be end up on top. Mm -hmm. And who knows what's actually happening and who's actually pulling the strings. But I think that's wise because they, they're not all in agreement on, I want the world to look exactly the same way. They have diverging goals, but... Mm -hmm that people like Klaus Faber the, are the almost social entrepreneurs who are that's right. getting all of these things to merge up. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. All together. Okay, so I agree with everything you've said there. I'm just letting, uh, let me say a little bit about it in this regard. 
so yeah, there's divergent interests. The, the state and these corporations don't have the same interests. But the ESG and the stakeholder regime is a means by which uh, peop, uh, these corporations are attempting to uh, elude state intervention and uh, preempt it, even pre uh, to 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 um, not necessarily preempt it. I mean, but to to, to um, pre-qualify for it. So it's a kind of pre-qualification scheme to make them qualified to stand up to state scrutiny and uh, uh, and, and state regulations in advance. And it also a means for them to drive out their competitors from business. And it's a means for them to um, uh, to uh, yeah, those two things. And then, uh, where was I going from there? The the uh, the 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 ESG is a. Uh, uh, sorry, I'm just losing my train of thought here. But what I was saying, what I was getting at here is, yeah. Then the, the, the so the state and those those corporations have different agendas, but the, they're trying to. And Klaus Schwab is exactly that's where I want to go. Is the coordinator who's trying to. Uh, Klaus Schwab in the World Economic Forum is, is the coordinating uh, kind of like a quarterback on the field who's trying to execute the plays to kind of try to bring these two interests into sync. Okay. In, in the long run, the, there's, there's no way it can work. Um, and, and right now, it's kind of a battle between on the woke side of it, that is to say, the, uh, the social score element of this. This is where all of the woke what has come, come to be known as woke capitalism is coming from. It, the, e, the S part of the ESG is determined according to other indexes, like the Human Rights Campaign's uh, uh, corporate uh, something index. I forget, corporate. The Human Rights Campaign has a corporate uh, index that, that rates corporations on the basis of their uh, trans, uh, their trans friendliness, let's put it that way. So that's why you have people, uh, companies like Bud Light and Target and Disney and all these companies. So we have a battle between finance capital on the one hand and the consumer base on the other, uh, consumer capital, if you will, on the other hand. There's a battle going on. And these companies are going woke because they know where their stakeholder, where their share, uh, where their investment capital is coming from. They know where that's it's coming from it's coming from these companies these asset managers that are all bought in and forcing this agenda down their throats and so if they don't go along with it they face extinction possibility a prospect so the question is like do i want to worry about alienating 30 percent of the consumer base or do i want to worry about alienating larry fink and blackrock and vanguard and state street and ubs and a whole slew of other investment asset uh, Is it only 30%? Like, well, so uh, if, for example, wokeness is no longer popular, like, I mean, I feel like it's already happening slowly. Like, well, wokeness is just slowly not being cool anymore. Most people mm -hmm. are just sick of it. Yeah. And like, and it's getting, I think that that's getting going to grow and continue to grow personally. But yeah. so if that happens and if it's like, okay, well, the consumers don't want it anymore and they're sick of it and it's just not happening and the percentage of those people continue to grow, can't they just shift gears and be like, oh, well, okay, we're not going to use wokeness anymore. We're going to use some other 
criteria tool. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. I think that's true. I mean, this is the this is the case that uh, monopolists and cartels use different criteria in order to to control the market. And so wokeness just happens to be one that they're using now. There have been other criteria in the past, and uh, they will probably shift to a different criteria in the future. So I, I agree with that. Um, I, I just wanted to say that the uh, index that I was referring to from the Human Rights Campaign is called the Corporate Equality Index. This is what's driving all this trans-friendly uh, consumer uh, advertising and propaganda. Uh, so, yeah. No, so I think it would, it would probably be very interesting to look at the financial statements of Bud Light then, for example, um, because we know they're losing a huge market share. But if their financial statements are staying stable while they're losing the market share, that would kind of, I think, answer the question of, you know, is the goose or the gander the, the, the bigger thing here? Yeah. Well, I think what, what Dr. Echtenwald was saying and what I've heard other people say is like, that's how deep this runs, mm -hmm. is that if you're willing to basically tell a significant chunk of your audience, like, we literally don't care about you and we don't want you as a customer, basically, yeah. that just goes to show that the power of the guy who has his hand on the money faucet, right? Like, that's that's the guy you have to... You have to appease because at some point, you know, certain things like, you know, if you want to buy a car, for instance, you don't like all the car companies, as far as I know, unless you're buying like a, a super boutique, whatever. Uh, I don't know if any of Ferrari or any of those country, uh, companies are still privately or family held. I don't think many, if any. But basically, like nobody wants electric cars. Like they right. have to be, they have to be heavily subsidized. They all right. suck. They're all ugly. Um, it's because of the corporate uh, uh, emissions regulations and the subsidies mm -hmm. that the only reason why people buy them. And once the batteries start running out, people are gonna be like, "Yeah, these suck." And but like they don't, the companies don't care because a they're regulated on the emission stuff, mm -hmm. and b they get the subsidies, right? Including Elon Musk for the for the green crap. Mm -hmm. So like it's yeah. if that those two things are more important than consumer demand or a significant strand of consumer demand, which shows you that we're not anywhere close to being what a capitalist country okay, should to, be to, to brandy's point though i think that there's a, there's this thing about wokeness so wokeness is just one uh, woke capitalism is like one strand of this uh, of this whole regime the other big strand is is the of course is the climate change catastrophism strand and uh you know i think that the, i think that we're gonna have to uh, libertarians are going to have to take on this this issue directly, which I attempted to do in my book. And uh, this has to be fought not only in terms of uh, the economy, but in terms of science. And uh, that's going to be daring. That's going to be difficult. That's going to get you branded as a, a climate change denier, which is, you know, of course, plays off of the Holocaust, Holocaust denial, denier uh narrative which means you are like a reprobate of the worst order and uh you must be you know disappeared uh so but, but th this this has to be dealt with uh directly and uh i think uh 
that may not be popular in libertarian circles because we don't like to necessarily engage issues that seem to be out of our purview, but um, it isn't out of our purview because it is affecting uh, the economy directly uh, at this point. Not as not the climate change itself, the catastrophism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it is interesting how the narrative changed since I was in high school. It was all it was environment, you know, caring about the environment. But now it's climate. Mm -hmm. And like that's like a complete shift. Like because caring about the environment. That made sense. Yeah. Take care of the environment. Like throw your trash Mm -hmm. away. Yeah. And then now it's all about the like, yeah, the complete narrative of how we talk about it is completely shifted from when 10, 20 years ago to now. Recycle and eat crickets. No, yeah, yeah that, like that. That's right. You know, Talk if the about, crickets taste good, I'm not against it. All right, I'll eat a bug. <laughs> well, if it's covered in chocolate, maybe. Yeah, but, you like, know, chocolate covered about ants. <laughs> what you learned in high school when they, when they make meats unavailable, that's going to yeah. be a different story, right? Yeah. 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 Yes. For sure. Um, you said what you learned in high school. I remember I was in like this summer camp type thing uh, when I, I must have been like six or seven. So this was like like er, very early eighties. I, I remember that this is one of the things that um, uh, makes me know that like I was born a libertarian and I just kind of like eventually discovered it. Yeah. I can see this kid. It was like a college kid who came in to talk to us about like recycling. I can, I can still picture him. And he told us literally, if you don't recycle your pop cans, we're going to have another ice age. <laughs> so and and so like even at a six years old i was like i know that's full of it yeah and so like it, but that's the thing they've changed it was in the 70s or early 80s it was, it was the ice age global, then it was global warming yeah. and then climate change because it's a problem that can never be solved right it's yeah. it's, it's always going to be changing like it always it's the perpetual war or the uh, perpetual revolution yeah. yes it's unfun unfalsifiable because they keep pushing the you know the consequences into the future yeah. Mm-hmm. So scientifically, you can't falsify this. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, yeah. So yeah, this is so, a big part of it. Uh, the, so the regime. Doctor Rectenwald, you um. You used to, by the way, you can call me Doctor Rec. That's what my uh, students used to call me in my. Okay, we'll do okay. that because I I, I was if calling I you that I, because we got two Michaels and so I was like uh, yeah, and I don't want to just call you Rectenwald because it's this. But Dr. yeah, so Rec doc- is good. Yeah. Dr. Rick, yeah. So my understanding is that Jordan Peterson is hosting a um, some kind of conference over in Europe to, to act as a, a counter to this. Uh, yeah. Do you know anything about that? Or do you want to tell us anything about that? Yes, it's uh, the uh, uh, I was invited, actually, and uh, I have uh, accepted the invitation, not because I uh, not because I'm sure about the agenda or the people involved but because I want to be there to see what's going on. Uh, and uh, it's called the ARC, it's called ARC, A-R-C. That's the acronym. It's uh, peop, uh, It's the, let me he see. He would use a biblical acronym. Yeah, they did, that's right. They used JP, the, of course. <laughs> it makes sense though. Biblical symbolism, <laughs> I know it does. <laughs> Peter, uh, let me just get the right, the whole name here. Uh, it is, um, yes, the Alliance for Responsible Citizenship, ARC. It's, uh, it's being established as a international community with a vision for a better world, et cetera, et cetera. 
and I was invited to attend. Um, I usually don't go anywhere unless I'm speaking, <laughs> so you know. Uh, and uh, but uh, I'm going to go to this, even though it's in London and it's going to be expensive, and I'm not being paid. Uh, I'm going to go to see what their what their agenda is. I don't like. Uh, I got to say right up front, I don't like any kind of elites, whether there be counter elites or elites, telling me what I should do in terms of, you know, being responsible and what that consists of. That to me is the polar opposite of decentralization in a sense. Yeah. I hate the the whole like responsible citizen. Language. Yeah. I, I, I hate that. I hate that. I don't like it either. Um, and uh, th they also have some language that I think is, uh, is, is very, it really accords with progressivism. It's, uh, for example, they say the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. That's a very progressivist notion. Is that MLK? Was that him? No, that's not necessarily MLK. Before him. I, I, maybe it is MLK, but the idea there is that uh, there's this progress narrative in history and it tends towards, you know, betterment. Uh, and uh, then they tell you what betterment is. That's the big question. What is betterment? What is progress consist of? And it's, all, you know, in, in terms of uh, the progressives, uh, it's always meant more of what we, you know, more um, social wealth. Yeah, we could, we, we could never dip back into the dark ages because we're on the progressive line of history. Right. That, doesn't yeah. that seem to go at odds with what I'm not the Jordan Peterson expert here, but I have listened to quite a bit of him. But like, isn't his point that what I've gotten from him implicitly is that, well, we have to better ourselves and make moral choices because we're always on the edge of exactly the opposite happening. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, of, uh, so it uh, seems weird to me that he would go along. What, what's he your take on that, Mike? Some, oh, sorry. No, I was no say. you could go too, but I know Mike's an expert on She's Jordan. She's a Jordan Peterson chick too. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I was going to say that he does seem to have like a, he talks about justice, but like not in like a social justice way. Like, I don't know. Mike, do you, do you know what I mean? What I, what I would, if, if that came from Peterson, what I would suspect he meant is um, that moral knowledge constitutes a form of uh social evolution that has that we have evolved with you know what i mean like if you were to go back to a more primitive time um things were generally speaking much more barbaric because you know we were much poorer we didn't have the standards moral knowledge isn't exactly what what was at the forefront of people's minds we we're much more tribal and warlike and as as we come especially into the industrial revolution and the advent of capitalism and standards rise moral standards have have increased if i had to guess that is you know where he's going there but i i meant to pull that up because i i think it's uh it's pretty cool that you were that you were invited um and it, and it might yeah. be some way that to create a brain trust and a network um to figure out some ways to to fight back against this and i don't want to betray confidences but i think you're going to have some libertarian friends there oh um, cool and yeah you're yeah and I'll, I'll i'll have to text you but um yeah, the, one of the, I, I had suggested to one of the other people who was invited uh, that you know we have a crew going over there, and he said, "Yeah, maybe we can all sit together at the lunch table." So <laughs> yeah, have to, yeah, we can yeah. we can we can mock the globalists that might be there. There might be some globalists that with a different type of globalism. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, they said here, for example, it says, "Can we find a unifying story Oof. that will guide us as we make our way forward?" Um, 
See, again, that tracks with Peterson, Aaron. It tracks with Peterson. He would argue that the Bible was a unifying story. And again, that it's a social evolution. We don't have to go into the Peterson rabbit hole, but yeah. Yeah, we should should do a show on that sometime. I've got a couple new lines. Yeah, let's let's talk about Peterson here because when I first came out against social justice and all that in the early days, you know, people were like, yo, you're the American Jordan Peterson. I was like, no, he's the Canadian Michael Rechtenwald. (laughs) Uh, But anyway. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm going to go just to see what this is about. And, uh, I want to also see if I can lend some, uh, uh, perspective that comes from our camp. Uh, that is the decentralization. Exactly. Camp. That's, That's going to need a voice. What, one yep. thing I wanted to say before we, before we go, and I'm not sure exactly, um, uh, uh, Dr. Reck, it's up to, up to you when you, uh, decide I can to go. go. For, I can go to nine. I can oh, Okay. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting that we have people on uh, the oldest person and the, uh, the I think the youngest person on this podcast both came from the extreme left. So I, I wanted you guys to have a chance to talk to each other about coming from being mm-hmm. Marxist, communist to, to becoming uh, libertarians and see what um, what similarities and what differences in each of your stories was. Mm hmm. Do you so want to Bra- go first? No, Brandy, no, you know, everybody, uh, 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 far more people know uh, his story. So why don't you go first? Um, so I was like, yeah, Marxist, Leninist. And it really came down to the fact that I blamed everything on capitalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as I got older, I started to realize that all of the things that I blamed on capitalism were actually because of the government. And it took Mm -hmm. me a while to get there. And then also like starting a business and stuff really made me realize that there's so many like, uh, like that the government holds so many people back, like has so many um, barriers to entry for people Mm -hmm. to like actually make it, you know, like, and Mm -hmm. one, the more I started to realize, the more I was like, wow, okay, everything that I believed was kind of false. Um, But I think that I had, I always had the the symptoms, I diagnosed the symptoms accurately. I just didn't diagnose the cause act- accurately, which I what I think a lot of people, mm-hmm. like a lot of socialists and communists, I, I think that that's the case for a lot of them is that they have the symptoms right, they just don't have the like diagnosis of the cause of the symptoms right. I have to agree with you 100% on that. I think you're absolutely right. I was in the same camp. I did, I did the same thing. I. I saw the social ills that we, you know, that were quite apparent and uh, thought that they were all due to capitalism. I thought capital, the capitalist class was the ruling class and uh, that this ruling class um, uh, had set up society in such a way as to strictly benefit themselves. And uh, that, uh, you know, I believed in the labor theory of value and, and uh, the idea that all the workers were exploited at the point of production. And uh, and that uh, so it, it and uh, that uh, profit really equaled uh, the margin of exploitation and all that Marxist probably uh, <laughs> goo. And uh, it took a while to unravel it. I first fell out of it from a political standpoint by virtue of seeing the totalitarian nature of the left when they came after me after I criticized social justice. And then it took a while to get into the economic analysis, which I started with Mises. Uh, Mises was my real deprogrammer. Uh, Mises was, uh, like I said on a tweet recently, it was like economic psychoanalysis, really. He, he got and unraveled all of the psychological 
adhesions I had uh, and distortions and uh, repressions and mistakes that I had harbored and uh, just totally unraveled them all and uh, and uh, made clear. So and a lot of it was based on resentment. Uh, and so that came to the surface. Uh, and, uh, you know, he makes that clear that that's driving a lot of this is resentment. But and, and there's and then the economic calculation problem uh, made it clear to me that it wasn't even possible. Uh, socialism, that is it's not even possible, theoret even theoretically. Uh, so, yeah, it was uh, uh, it was a long journey. I think I've I've recounted it in several books, so I don't I don't want to bore people with that. Just one quick question. What was your entry? What, like, which work of Mises was your, your entry point? Uh, socialism and economic and sociological analysis. Hmm. I, so he was like the third for me because it was Milton Friedman and Thomas Sowell were kind of like my economic like gateways into just like learning about capitalism and seeing things in a completely different way. And then it was Mises and, mm -hmm. and Hayek. I, and okay. Like yeah, yeah, my progression was Mises, Rothbard, and then Hoppe. And yeah. that might not be popular. You're a man of culture. No, I was going to say, that's <laughs> the, man, that's the way to go. I'm that's probably like, the only minarchist here. <gasps> Dirty minarchist. Yeah, we're going to... We're going to complete your training. Uh, <laughs> don't worry about that. I there's have a, an there's anarchist a deep in my heart. The line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and... Uh, there's a great there was a really good interview that Dave Rubin did uh, with with Thomas Sowell and they were talking about his breaking out of being a communist, too. And um, <laughs> Rubin asked him, you know, what it was that did it. And just in classic Thomas Sowell fa uh, fashion, he goes, facts. <laughs> it was facts. Yeah. For me, it was trauma first. First of all, it was trauma. I had to be traumatized out of the left by virtue of the left's attack on me. And then uh, as I regained my senses, uh, I emerged from Plato's cave and uh, you know, faced some disorientation because I was seeing things, you know, without these uh, ideological blinders on. And uh, yeah, it was just uh, it was a pretty long process because, you know, a few years because uh, I was not just a Marxist. I was writing for Marxist tech um, periodicals and uh you know publishing on in marxist tracks and stuff like that yeah and it's hard when you build your identity around something like that it's very hard to break out when your whole identity is built around like an ideology because mm -hmm. like you I, you it becomes part of you and so it's like it's heartbreaking when you're like breaking you're like breaking up with this ideology uh and i definitely know what you mean when you say like trauma because i would say like i i'd had moved to being moderate at this time like i would be a capitalism but I, I, I was a capitalist, but I was like, was like, I'm like a centrist, you know, mm -hmm. and but it took trauma for me to go full on libertarian, mm. like to, to go all the way. I got canceled. So oh, okay. that, I got think that I got canceled. So I think that was what really like pushed me over the edge to like being like, OK, I'm a libertarian now. Yeah. Yeah. I'm still getting canceled to this day. I got canceled on a date. I mean, this is kind of, like, <laughs> I got canceled on a date. I looked up your politics. No, thanks. Goodbye. <laughs> you dodged a bullet. Yeah. yeah. yeah did, thank she, God that did. did she do this before or after you paid for dinner? <laughs> before, thankfully. Yeah. There you go. All we had is a Zoom interview and that was it. Zoom <laughs> you could have tested her on the socialistic theory of paying for the first date. 
Well, I would have paid, you know, I don't buy into that. And uh, I'm kind of a, I'm kind of a, uh, I'm chivalristic, you know. I, I will yeah. say that getting canceled was the best thing that ever happened to me, though, because it took getting canceled for me to like, because I was like producing events for a company and they ended up uh, asking me to retire from my position. Um, and afterwards, I ended up producing my own events and then mm. like, and started doing it myself and they were all super successful and it was like really scary because i was like oh my god everyone's gonna hate me because they all think i'm like this horrible racist person but my shows yeah. were so successful and it took getting canceled to just make that jump and like doing it on my own yeah and yeah, i'm sure you were called every name in the book racist sexist uh homophobe transphobe nazi alt-right short dance yeah. white devil uh, mostly racist <laughs> Satan. I was called Satan as well. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's funny that I think a lot of the left, like, like a lot of the Bernie Sanders people, I think kind of were kind of diagnosing the thing uh getting close there. And which goes back to my theory, and I, I think Dave Smith has talked about this. But, you know, back in, uh, you know, the when the Occupy movement and the Ron Paul movement were both kind of starting to talk about the same things and mention the Federal Reserve, that's when, uh, if you look at the instances of, of um, mm. things like CRT and, and mm. terms like that, that are now terms that we cannot escape, uh, that we hear talked about and debated every other day, mm -hmm. but were unheard of in 2009 among mm -hmm. the general public, all that started as a way to distract the left mm -hmm. and the right from, you know, meeting and and doing all Absolutely. that. So I think I think you're seeing some of the and, same thing with the uh, RFK type stuff too. Like again, I think he's really dumb on a lot of stuff, but right. he he's really great on a lot of stuff. And to have him be the Democrat nominee, um, that that would just be a, a great shift in the Overton window. And yeah, they might they're, have. They're going to do everything they can to keep that from happening. Yeah. Not, and don't don't put it past them. I mean, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Look at well, but if climate is the end goal, how do we know that he wouldn't be a, a, a ideal candidate, theoretically? Like, how do we so, know he would not? Like, I know that he's anti-establishment in a lot of other ways. I was but... shocked. I was shocked when I heard his answer recently when, when asked directly about the climate. It sounded like Ron Paul. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> like we should, we should have free market solutions for it. Uh, yeah, I I couldn't believe it. It it, it sounded nuclear nuclear though. Nuclear. Yeah. I hate yeah. That word. Well, <laughs> we're we're coming up on time here, so I'm gonna give Brandy. I'm gonna give you uh, one argument to help to hopefully help push you towards uh, the anarchist edge. And this is kind of a concession that I actually make towards the communist types because you know they focus on corporate power and its influence over society and and political power and all that stuff. And, um, of course, that's a real problem. Um, what I would say, though, is that the state, as long as you have capitalism plus the state, there's always going to be an incentive towards corporatism mm -hmm. because because there's always going to be the opportunity due to hum just the, the human fallibility um, to to purchase the power of the state. And that now the the the. Uh, communist side is going to say, well, then we need to get money out of politics and all this stuff and, and basically restrict money. But we as Misesians understand that 
you know, that that human will to, to uh, buy power or to purchase power and power pedal and all this stuff is going to be there uh, regardless. And also so is the the desire for a price system and the desire for trade and the desire for division of labor. So you can have money and build society across that division of labor. You don't necessarily need the state to do that, though. So that's that's kind of where it breaks down. There's always that incentive where you have capitalism plus the state. Yeah, it always comes back to like things like the military and stuff like that. That is hard for me to reconcile. Like, because if you don't have a military, you become very vulnerable as a country. And oh. so people say, like, we would have. I mean, I, mean, I think I, I play a lot of civilization, okay? Like, yeah. <laughs> I feel like. There's a, there's a Hoppa book on this, actually. Well, I'll <laughs> it's send a complete journey, yeah. A free book. Uh, it's a little short. Uh, it's also. The Hoppe thing, and also uh, Chaos Theory by Bob Murphy. I will send you that, and that, and then we'll talk after that, and and, and we'll see. But, just, but, but going back to the the fallibility point, this is where some minarchists would say, "Well, that's that's the whole problem is that humans are fallible, therefore yeah. you need the state, uh, and that's why you know that's kind of a Christian free market viewpoint as well. Uh, that because we live in a fallen world." We need to have some sort of overarching thing, and I think that's wrong. I got to say, yeah. the state is in, is consists of people who are also fallible. So why should it we rewards the fallibility? Yeah, yeah, and they're it rewarded it. for it. Indeed, absolutely. Uh, but that, oh, one yeah. la one last thing uh, I wanted to hear. You wanted to say something about conspiracy conspiracy theories, Doctor Rex. So say. Uh, uh, give give us uh, your train of thought on that. We won't be able to explore it. But are the frogs gay? Well, <laughs> <laughs> just I have a whole chapter on the question of conspiracy theory in my book, The Great Reset and the Struggle for Liberty. And the basic premise is there is that a theory isn't wrong for being a conspiracy theory. A, a theory is wrong if it doesn't have if it's not supported by the evidence. So uh, this whole phrase conspiracy theory of course as an epithet began with the cia we know that in connection with jfk and assassination uh, but it was seeded by Karl popper in his book the open society and its enemies uh he he talked about the conspiracy theory of society and then dismissed it as implausible and impossible and therefore they took that and then he used it uh to dismiss all theories that weren't backed by the state, frankly. So what conspiracy theory really represents is all, all theories uh, that, that posit a conspiracy that aren't floated by the state. That's really what a conspiracy theory is when you get it in a negative pejorative sense. Um, and of course, because the state has its own conspiracy theories all the time. Uh, take 9-11, they have a conspiracy theory about that. It was a conspiracy of, uh, you know, uh, Islamic fundamentalist uh, terrorists. So there's always a, cons you know, conspiracy theory itself is, uh, should be rescued from opprobrium. Uh, make conspiracy theory great again. That's, <laughs> that's my, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's all I got to say about it, I guess. Okay. Dr. Rekawal, where can people find your work, uh, find and purchase your work and follow you on social media? And talk uh, about the new podcast. And my new podcast is called Rekt, R-E-K-T, which is 
hosted and sponsored by the Mises Institute, and you can find it through their uh, through their media page. Uh, my my own work altogether, including including the podcasts, are all kept at michaelrectonwald.com. That's r e c t e n w a l d dot com. Michaelrectonwald.com. All my books, articles, etc. I don't charge for articles. I don't go on Substack. I keep everything there, uh, central central spot for all of my work. Yeah, well, I, I really uh, I, I really love your work. And when I first uh, heard you, I think on Tom Woods. Um, I was like, is this guy going to turn out to be anything? He sounds pretty good. And boy, was I, uh, um, uh, my, the, my hopeful side of that turned out to, to, to be what happened. And so I'm glad I've got to know you a little bit. We're, we're both, uh, Bob Dylan fans. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's always nice to, I, I want to talk to you too. When I, when I'll email you about this other, um, um, the, the how to resist type uh, project maybe, but I don't know, we can maybe work out a, a Bob Dylan article or something like that to collaborate yeah. on. I like Bob uh, Dylan after uh, the other, another side of Bob Dylan, everything before that, I don't really like. Well, after, yeah, we, we should have a long discussion <laughs> uh, because I don't think anybody else is interested. Uh, yeah, who's no, uh, no, no, who's under that. the age of 47. So. <laughs> I like Bob Dylan. Okay, that's cool. <laughs> Just cross all these generational gaps. But yeah, that's yeah. another conversation. Okay. Well, yeah, I appreciate everybody. Mike, I know we were talking about uh, uh, our guest coming up uh, next Monday. Do we have anybody nailed down yet? Do you want to probably better not tease anybody if we don't have anybody nailed down yet? But we were talking some pretty big names. Uh, along Not nailed down, but uh, I'm sure we'll be able to get Maj Torre on next week. And, uh, you know, there's been a lot of conversation on Twitter about his stance on reparations and all that stuff. We're going to get to the bottom of it here on this show. Uh, it's Can't been a wait. long time since we've had uh, <laughs> Dave Smith on the show. So I want to bring him on, talk to him. And, uh, you know, then we'll start booking out for the rest of the next month after that. Yeah, so we're not exactly sure when those two are going to be on, but uh, I hope hopefully soon. And uh, if anybody does have a... Uh, um, you know, suggestion, uh, hit us up on Twitter, LP Mises caucus, or Mike is Mises chair. I'm Liberty air and you see it all there on the screen. So, uh, give us a shout out and, uh, yeah, uh, uh, thanks. I know you're, you're always very busy, Dr. Rechtenwald. And so, uh, I'm, I'm very glad to have you on and anytime you need anything from us, uh, if we could possibly at all help, uh, please let us know. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Uh, one last thing. My, my handle on Twitter is at great reset prof at great reset prof. Yeah. I'll, uh, yeah, I think I also sent an email out to the list today with a, with a link and I put it in the description of the show and stuff, because I was talking earlier when you, I Google you, I don't get your website. And when I searched for you on Twitter, I, I, I thought we were, I had followed you or whatever. And I think maybe you changed your Twitter handle at some point, but yeah. you, when I typed in Michael Rectenwall, you did not come up. So, uh, um, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. I know we, we need to get Elon on, on that. Maybe we could at least get you a uh, unshadow van there, but yeah, yeah. I, I really appreciate it. It's good to see you, uh, Brandy and Mike, and uh, uh, we'll see y'all next week at seven thirty Eastern. Thanks. Thank you. Peace. Bye.